0: to Recess Tonight. I am Rob. Hey, it's Alan. So, dude, doing an interview series today uh, with someone that I am really, really excited to talk to. Um, It's someone that I definitely admire very much, and I think that she's done some tremendous work in the critical care, emergency nurse, flight nurse, research nurse world. Um, Yeah, Stoke is very high. Stoke is Trey high. Can this
1: person please introduce herself?
2: Hi guys. Wow. That was high praise. I, are you guys available for my eulogy or like we do any type of ceremonies? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm Nisa. I'm Nisa Hathaway. I um, co-host the Q word podcast and I'm an ER flight nurse in Southeastern US.
0: That's a like, that's a job title that just is filled with badassery. If you, if you ask me, right, like anything that's flight, anything that makes you, that makes you a badass. in in my opinion, can you give us a little bit of your, your background, like uh, who you are outside of being a flight nurse? Like, are you, how long you've been an emerge nurse? How long you've been, I don't know, were you an ostomy nurse before? Like, I don't know.
2: (laughs) I went straight out of nursing school into a level one trauma center, um, right. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Right into the deep end of the pool. Um, I was lucky enough to do a critical care nurse residency. So I got. A smattering of all of the adult ICUs as well. So when I came off orientation, I stayed in the ER, but I did all of my overtime in the ICU. And I loved it there because I got the experience with 12 hours worth of ventilators, 12 hours worth of critical care drips, instead of just the three or four hours stabilize and get them out. So I felt like the ICUs made me a better ER nurse. Um, I've also done a little stint in a burn ICU. It's a little bit too far away from my house to do it permanently. But I think that if I lived in that city, I would be a burn ICU nurse. Those were the sickest patients I've ever taken care of. Um, I love burn care, which sounds weird to anybody who's not an ER nurse.
0: <laughs> it, it, I'm going to be honest here. Burns really, I just, I just can't. And so my hat is off to you. That is highly impressive. Highly impressive. <laughs> if it goes beyond telfa, gauze, cling, and
1: plastic tape, well, it's beyond my skill. So, Nisa, <laughs> you also do some crew, some some wicked uh, nursing education stuff on the side. You have a podcast, eh?
2: Right. Um, I have a co-host, Lisa. She is my best friend of thirty years. She's a lay person. And she and I together uh, do a podcast for emergency nursing. And our kind of tagline is that we do the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing. So we touch on some clinical stuff. We do a lot of navigating the culture of emergency nursing. And when I say emergency nursing, I mean the ER, but I also mean the flight environment, the urgent care. Uh, Freaking school nurses are emergency nurses on some bad days. Um and and so a lot of what we talk about translates to a lot of different nursing but we focus on on emergency.
0: Cool. Cool. I like it. I mean I am on a, on a floor, right? If you walk in and your patient's shorter breath, doesn't matter if you're in an ER or not, that is an acute situation where you need to figure out what's going on, right? Cool. So yeah, I like it.
2: Yeah, you just became an emergency nurse.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. I did. Awesome. <laughs> um perfect. So, um we're talking about something today that Alan and I are really, really excited about, because I think it's something that kind of goes hand in glove with a topic that's really important to us, which is the nurse-led code. And um, I think this is a piece that is really important to to go together with it on, because as we were talking before we kind of started recording, you know, it's, there's so many components to a nurse-led code. And I think a nurse-led code, that idea is a concept. It's not a, a, a skill set or a toolbox. And so the thing we're talking about today is resuscitation ease, right?
2: Yes. Resuscities. That's right.
0: Resuscities. Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's even better. Yeah. Let's go with that. You'll have to excuse my accent. I'm Canadian. <laughs> um, so if we think about what this is all about, are there three main kind of chunky categories? As you know, we like to break this stuff into three main things because Alan and I aren't very intelligent. Are there main categories you could break this, this kind of world into?
2: Yeah. If I had to break it down into the top three categories, I would say that there's a code lexicon. That's category number one and probably the most important. The second one would be something that we call flying by voice. And then the third one would be the healthcare team's verbal dexterity.
0: Okay. I think that's cool. I like that. I like the, I like the groundwork there. Alan, do you agree like with these terms? Perfect. Um, oh, by the way, I just want to make a, a point. Alan and I are recording this in separate rooms. He is actually underneath a comforter with a mic in front of his mouth um, in the dark. So if he falls asleep and you hear him snoring, I'm not actually joking. It's, it, it's actually him <laughs> sleeping. Uh, okay. So, so Nisa, help us out. What, what do you, when you say lexicon, what are you talking about here?
2: So one of the things that we know when we're reviewing uh, codes and debriefing codes is that communication is the top issue that causes mistakes to be made, uh, causes delay in care. And so just like so many other things, when this was discovered, we look toward other industries. And one of our favorite industries to rip things off of is the aviation industry. So we know that simulation is something that we've added into our medical culture, and we stole that straight from from aviation. We also love checklists and we know what kind of safety nets that those provide for us. And those were also taken from aviation. And so when we realized that communication was a problem, we looked to the aviation industry to see what they do uh, for, for communication clarity. And one of the things that they do is they have a standardized aviation lexicon. It's about 50 words or phrases that they use um, in different scenarios, and they don't deviate much from it. And it is uh, something that they have found provides clarity. So things aren't misheard. They're not mistaken for something else. Nothing sounds like something else that could be misinterpreted. And so we think that in medical and in the resuscitation room, we can do the same thing. Uh, Narrow it down to some phrases and standardized terms that help us with the communication piece in the, the Code Blue, the Trauma Recess, the pal, Code Pals, whatever it is.
1: Can you give us a few examples of uh, what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so I'll give you some of my favorite examples and, and sort of the scenarios where you might see them. One of the, my favorite examples, the first one is the word Abort. And this one, I I don't know if you guys have been in this scenario much, but I found myself in this scenario many, many times during an intubation, the, uh, the intubator, the resuscitationist is eyes down, focused on that airway and focused on finding the vocal cords and placing that tube. So what that means, because their, their vision is so, so narrow at that time they lose a lot of situational awareness, including what's going on on the monitor, what's going on with the vital signs. So oftentimes as the nurse assisting, it's your job to to keep a watch on those vital signs and how the patient is doing otherwise. And so if you've been in an intubation where things are taking a little bit longer and you've seen the nurse who's standing there right there in the resuscitationist's ear going, oh, our SATs are 93, oh, now they're (laughs) 92, we're 89, we're 88, oh, they're braiding down. And they're just piling on the stress to the resuscitationist who's already clearly in a difficult situation. So instead of doing that, uh, what we're suggesting is that you have an established threshold ahead of time. So uh, in my guidelines on flight, it's it's 94, 93%. Once they dip below that, we're going to um, abort the intubation attempt and try something different and go ahead and bag them up. So in in the resuscitation room, what that would look like instead of the, oh, we're at 89, we're at 88, they're braiding down, you know, pull out, pull out. We would just say abort the intubation. And what it does is it sets aside the ego of the resuscitationist. It takes away that piece where you're just pounding on the stress um, letting them know play-by-play play how this patient is deteriorating. And it, it helps everyone stick to the, the pre-decided guidelines that is the best thing for this patient. So the resuscitationist can still make the decision, I'm right there, I'm almost in, I'm going to take a half a second and and put this tube in. Or they, they realize, yeah, I'm nowhere near it, we've got to come out and try a second attempt.
0: Okay, so I really like that language, actually, right? Like, I mean, abort also is... I know this is going to sound kind of ridiculous, but the fact that it's a one syllable word, I think, has some punchiness to it as well. Um, And so, if I'm thinking about in the last intubation that I was involved with, who you said that the nurse kind of that's assisting with it, it almost feels like you need a pre brief beforehand to be like, okay, if we're tubing this guy, you know, uh, Darren or Kathy or whatever, you are the nurse in charge of calling abort on the intubation. It feels like you'd have to set that up beforehand. Do you find that in your practice that having that set conversation early and the exact parameters is pretty Yeah, I would agree
2: with that. And that uh, protects everyone involved. It protects the patient. It it protects the intubator. Um, And I think that Two, when you are looking at your patient, you can tell, oh, this is somebody who has no neck, or this is somebody who uh, has a, you know, a shrunken jaw because they haven't had teeth for a very long time, or this is somebody who already uh, has unstable vital signs. Some of the indicators that you would know that this intubation is going to be a difficult one, those are things that you would discuss then as well. And so you set your threshold maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, but definitely a conversation to have ahead of time.
1: It's almost it's almost in keeping with uh, Chris Hicks and Cliff Reed's work on making complex problems simple. Eh? It's kind of like you know, in your pre-brief, you ask, what do we know? What do we expect? And what do we expect will go wrong? Or how do we change our course if things go wrong? I think it
0: just makes sense. I just want to point out, by the way, that Alan is at an A count of two and Nisa as a y'all count of zero right <laughs> oh, let now. Let
2: make up for it.
0: All right.
1: Um, Nisa, there was also something you mentioned, which was uh, flying by voice.
2: Yes. So um, flying by voice, what, the, where this comes from is when they were investigating the black box uh, after some dismal crashes had occurred. What they found in the recordings is mostly silence. Um, when things got very, very dangerous or scary in the cockpit, the pilot and the, the co-pilot got silent. And so the medical researchers were interested to know how that ma- might translate to us in the resuscitation bay. So they looked at simulation recordings and found the same thing that when the code started to go south and things got really intense, everyone in the resuscitation room got silent. And so when we talk about flying by voice, what we're talking about is in particular the resuscitationist, but everyone in the room is invited to kind of talk it out, say what you're seeing, don't assume that everyone else is seeing the same thing, Um, talk about the changes. And what that does is it creates what we're calling a shared mental model. So sometimes when we're in artificial environments, like the megacode at the end of TNCC or the end of ACLS, We tell the student, now, when you get in here, I want you to say everything, say everything you're thinking, even if you're going down the wrong path, it's going to feel really artificial and silly, but do it anyway. That's not how we do it in real life. But what we're asking now is we're actually inviting everyone do this in real life, talk it out so that everyone um, can sort of be on the same page that we recognize who's doing what, what changes are being seen where and uh, what each person is thinking about, particularly the resuscitationist, the nurse lead, the scribe. So that's uh, that's flying by voice in the code blue scenario.
0: So that's super interesting when I think about the idea of, you know, talking out what you're thinking, right? Because I think there's some huge benefits to people who do that, uh, resuscitationists who do that. Like, and one example I'm thinking about is, you know, every time there's a rhythm check in in an arrest saying, you know, okay, we are in the V-fib algorithm at this present time, and we are going to continue with antiarrhythmic, blah, 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 blah. The one thing I'm wondering is, how do you socialize that? Because it's something that we do, like you said, we do it in simulation training, we do it in in-situ situations, we do it in courses. Um, I find that younger residents will do it often but in nursing i find that we outside of that it's not done that often i wonder have you had any experience socializing that or or just kind of working it into either your very small flight environment up there in the sky or or how has that worked for
2: you yeah i think initially when you're bringing this practice in this flying by voice uh asking good questions what are you seeing what are you thinking what are we missing uh, let's review what we've done so far. Like you were saying, let's let's go through what we know, what we've done, what are we thinking? Um, some of the best resuscitationists I know have asked the questions. So when when we get to a point in a in a code where we've sort of exhausted our resources, one of my favorite physician resuscitationists will go around the room and pull everyone in the room. First, they will do sort of a recap and say, "Okay, this is what we know, this is what we've done," and then they will go around and say. What do you think we're missing? Can you think of anything else? What about you? And all the way around to pull the group, letting them know that we're dropping that hierarchy and that you are invited to share in this mental model. And then when there are no new good ideas, this resuscitationist does the same thing, goes around. My screen We thing. do
1: not. We are not sponsored by Microsoft. We are sponsored <laughs> by my mother. Continue.
2: <laughs> yeah. Love her. Uh, so So anyway, this resuscitationist does a final poll of the of the team and says, "Does anyone have any objections to ending this code?" and asks each person in the room if they have any objections and this is really important for someone who maybe has been too shy to speak up or has a piece of information that they didn't feel comfortable sharing. Uh, but now we're getting down to the final decision making and and again, we've invited them to Remind us this, you know, this patient has a history of alcoholism. Have we considered giving some MAG or whatever it is that piece of information that they want to add to it? Otherwise, everyone feels like we have done a valiant effort, we've done what we could do, and now we're prepared to call this code as a team.
1: I could see how it would help with uh, a hot debrief following a critical incident. I'm curious if it's been researched and if there's any literature supporting this um, type of approach to resuscitation?
2: Yeah, so there are physicians from neonatologists who are running NRP to pediatricians who are running PALS to specifically ER and critical care physicians who are running uh, all of the above, frequent code blues, that are calling for this. There's the ones that have asked us to, let's look at this, let's talk about this, let's do this. There aren't a lot of evidence-based research projects specifically in medicine, But one of the neonatologists who calls for this, Dr. Yamada, she says requiring prospective randomized controlled trials prior to implementing a behavior strategy that has a high degree of face validity and decades of proven efficacy in other high-risk domains seems unnecessary. Even if we had the funding to conduct this kind of study, she goes on and says, you know, guys, basically, this is just common sense, (laughs) y'all.
0: Ooh, we're two to one with the uh, U.S. and Canadian uh, things we said. I was that <laughs>
2: paraphrased. I, I did paraphrase. <laughs> That's
0: good. So, so one thing that I think is really interesting with that is I draw a lot of parallels between the research that would be looking at this with also research for medical education. And the idea that you can distill down complexity of communication or in kind of my frame, complexity of medical education or healthcare education into a number that comes out of an RCT, right? Mm -hmm. Um, These trials would be not, I I, I just don't see how it's well suited to a trial. I think it, to me, it seems like this would be a more of a a a qualitative study looking at the Perceived impressions from clinicians, the improvements in teamwork, the uh, potential implications to the flow of the of the care in the in the environment, the things that we do know, the components that we do know that do increase uh, beneficial patient outcomes, right? Like it's, I'm totally with uh, with Dr. Yarmada here. That sounds like a totally reasonable approach.
2: Right, I agree.
1: Now, there's a uh, something out there as well, Nisa, that I want to ask you about. Whimperies. We talked about resentees, yeah. but there's also whimperies. Kind of the yang to the yin here. Do you mind breaking this yeah. down for our listeners?
2: Yeah. So what we know is that um, when when you're giving a a direction that is mitigating language or it's not very clear. We call this a, a whimperative, or, or like you said, a whimper ease. And this is not, there's no place for this in the resuscitation room or in critical care either. So some examples that um, that are in the literature would be, hey, is there any chance you could pop a line in for me? Or uh, do we want to think about setting up for intubation? Or um, how about we get some bag mass ventilation happening at some point? These are all very vague, not... Um, orders that are assigned to anyone. We don't have any clear directive that this is a critical situation. So there's not a lot of room for fluff or whimperatives in the resuscitation bay. So that kind of brings brings us to the third piece, which is that I mentioned is verbal dexterity. And this is really key for me, um, that when we are using this kind of language and this flying by voice and this medical lexicon that we're being very direct. So a lot of the niceties get dropped off by necessity. And what we're asking the healthcare team to recognize is that when you step across the threshold of the recess bay, the environment is different. They already know that. And that the language is different. It's more direct. It's more clear. Um, And so we already practice verbal dexterity. When a nurse is dealing with a pediatric patient, uh, he or she is not talking with them and approaching with them the same way that they would a patient who is in an acute psychiatric exacerbation. Um, You're definitely not going to approach the crowd in triage that's getting frustrated and upset the same way that you would a grieving family. So we already click into these different types of of um, language and tone, and so what we're just asking is that you add one more layer to that and understand that in the resuscitation bay things need to be clear and direct. Um, and so that's what we mean when we talk about verbal dexterity and imperatives, doing away with the imperatives, doing away with the fluff.
1: Oh man, you hit my soapbox, Nisa. My wow. hill that I will die on, amongst many other hills, is when nurses say, oh, I can't say what I think the patient has because they, because I can't diagnose. So I'm just going to say and hint, oh, this patient has abdominal pain, is radiating into their back, um, they might be a little hypotensive, I can't feel any pulses in their legs. Just say it. I think this is a triple A. <laughs> Like, can we stop that whimperies, please?
2: Yes, yes. And and make no mistake, this is not permission for you to be a bully or for you to be a dictator in the resuscitation room. But this is also not the place for you to be the shrinking violet. Like we are in a life or death situation. So just understand, and and it's important when you have an orientee or a preceptee to clue them in that when we step into this room, things are going to be a little bit different. And you'll understand why when you see what it is that we're doing. It's it's a necessary thing.
0: I kind of feel like we need to socialize this stuff early with uh, with nurses who are coming into critical care environments, or really any environment for that perspective, right? Like talking about the fact that there are different gears to the car, right? Like exactly like you said, you're going to talk differently to different types of patients, different um, populations, and different um, individuals, and that that same idea should play in a uh, in a hospital setting wherever you are in said hospital. No, it's, uh, I think that's super right. important.
2: Agreed.
1: Good stuff. So Nisa, uh, what three takeaways do you want our listeners to walk home with?
2: I think you said it uh, boiled down our communication to some very clear, direct imperatives. We learn in ACLS about closed-loop communication I would love to see that expanded to a standardized jargon to understanding that there is uh, a shared mental model when we when we open up and say what we're seeing and, and talk to one another, fly by voice, and then we develop an, one more layer of our verbal dexterity and, um, and understand that the resuscitation bay is no place for vagueness or um, passivity.
1: Wonderful thank you. And how can we find your podcast?
2: Oh yeah. So we are the Q word podcast and we are on Apple and Google and Stitcher and soon to be on Pandora. We got the notification today. Hooray. Um, and you can find us at the dot We're on all the social media. You can find me personally or, uh, through the podcast.
0: And, and might I add, you are an active Twitter human that we love interacting with because you have good ideas that are evidence-based. And to Alan and I, that's like the recipe for a really, really successful human. So thank you for being that person.
2: Thank you. And same to you. I love that you guys are dispelling dogmas with evidence-based practice. <laughs> that is uh, right in my wheelhouse of love.
0: <laughs> Sweet. love it well thanks so much for coming on and uh until next time take care
2: see y'all